Good morning. We have a lot to celebrate. Thank you for all of those of you who helped make Kids Camp a success. Uh, there was a lot happening there, wasn't there? And uh, oh, to be young again is all I can say to that. Uh, our youth are in a youth camp right now in Colorado. And in a couple of weeks, uh, our kids go to Kids Camp. Um, another thing we have to celebrate, as you recall, we set a goal to raise $2,500 to send our kids to camp. And the last I heard, the number I have is we surpassed that goal, 2536. And so uh, we have reason to celebrate. Yep, that's, that's worthy. Yes. Just a quick reminder that if you're not signed up to get our newsletter to catch up on all these things that are happening, um, you can make sure that you give us your email address and contact number or information here, and we'll make sure you get signed up for the newsletter so you can keep up with all the stuff that's happening. If you're a guest here, we welcome you. And we would encourage you to fill out your information here so we can connect with you. And then on the back are the sermon notes if you're a blank filler enter. And that's where we'll go in a few moments. My name is Pastor Eric Norris. I'm the pastor of Discipleship and Connection. And uh, it occurred to me this morning when I got ready to speak that uh, I don't know if it's co coincidence or, or what, but every time I speak, like the whole staff leaves. So Dylan's gone, and Lene's gone, and Brian's gone, and I don't know if that's what that says, uh, but I'll let you, I guess, be the judge of that. And so, welcome again this morning. We are in the, in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments, and we're going to continue that this morning. As Christians, as those who were raised in church, many of us, we are familiar with the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's been a part of our lingo from Bible school on up, and so we're, we're fairly comfortable with the Ten Commandments. Um, and I would guess that if you went and just ask on the street um, about the Ten Commandments, most people would say they are familiar with the Ten Commandments. Now, when you ask them what they are, you will get a wide variety of, of responses. Um, you'll get some humorous responses. You'll get, um, yeah, I follow those um, all the time type responses. Sadly, you even get some responses. I watched several of the man on the street type interviews about the Ten Commandments where they go on the street and ask questions about the Ten Commandments. And, you know, what sadly, what didn't hurt, hit me the most there were a number of people that, that just responded that they were irrelevant today, that they were something that were a long time ago and that today um, they really are, are past their prime. And so that kind of took me by surprise. I wasn't ready for that. If I were to ask you this morning, if the Ten Commandments, if you think most people view them as a list of do's or a list of don'ts, what do you think most people would say? Okay, that's interesting. The first service, um, it, it was kind of the other way. And in fact, several people said both. And so I heard what I heard this morning is don't. That's kind of what I, that's the way I was raised. And the church I grew up went in, which was a very biblical foundational church, my personal view of God, and you've heard me share this in my testimony, is that I kind of saw God as just this big thumb over me, that when I did one of those, broke one of those, he was ready to do this. And so that was my personal view of the don'ts of the Ten Commandments. And uh, what I've learned over time and what we've learned through this series is that the, the commandments simply set the boundaries for relationship. And we've talked about the first four commandments set the boundaries of relationship between us and God. You shouldn't have any other gods before you. Don't misuse his name. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so those first four set boundaries in how we relate and be our, in relationship with God. The last six are how we are in relationship with others with other and it's appropriate i guess that there are more because we struggle in our narcissistic world these days with uh, where it's all about me on how to relate to others but the commandments simply set those boundaries 
they were given to this group of, of Israelites, this group of people who are now in transition from slavery in Egypt to the fulfillment of, of God's promised land. And so they're in transition and when God gives them these commandments and they were, they were given for the purpose because God knew that not only would they need them on this journey to kind of help them along the way, once they got settled, they were sure going to need them, uh, and again, to help establish the boundaries of relationship. And so these commandments, they're a moral compass on how we treat each other, and they're born out of the very heart of God. And if you look across the world, almost every culture group have some form of these type of commandments. Now, they vary uh, in, in different cultures, but almost everybody has some form of the basics of these commandments, the don't kill, the don't steal. And so they're a moral compass about how we treat each other. And so just a reminder, here's where we've been so far. So we've talked about that you shouldn't have any other gods before God. We've talked about that you shouldn't have idols that replace God. We've talked about that we shouldn't misuse the name and how important the name of the Lord is. We've, we've talked about keeping the Sabbath and remembering it as a holy day. We've talked about honoring your parents, and we, that, that was the first commandment with a promise that you're going to have a long life if you do that. Uh, then we've covered the don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Today, commandment number nine. And the text is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. And uh, there, this command comprises eight words. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have been called lately to testify against your neighbor? How many of you ever have been called to testify against your neighbor? Well, I'm wondering how applicable this really is then. Well, I say that facetiously. You know, when we planned this series and we were planning the commandments, Pastor Brian let me choose which commandment uh, that I wanted to preach on, and I chose this one wondering how God would take these eight words and speak through me. And so it was a test, kind of, when I, when I chose this commandment. I wondered what direction God would, would lead. And I also knew that I would have lots of time because uh, I just got back on Friday from a two-week, 5,300-mile trip on my motorcycle where I rode to Seattle and back. Thus, the tan arms and the sunburnt nose. Now, when you're sitting on the back of a motorcycle for 5,300 miles, you have a lot of time to think. I will tell you, vacations are different when you're on a motorcycle because not only do you see, you smell your vacation. A lot of roadkill, a lot of interesting smells along the way. Alfalfa is my favorite, uh, fresh cut mown hay. Um, but you smell a variety of things. But I spent a lot of time processing this commandment and what it means and how it's applicable to us. And to be honest with you, when you're preparing a sermon on the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, or 7, or the 23rd Psalm, where you can break down words and verses and text and context and cultural uh, meaning, it's easy to fill 30 to 40 minutes. I have eight words. It's different sermon preparation. And so I still looked at the, the meanings of the words, and I still looked at verses and context, but uh, we'll see how the rest of it goes to see it may be a 10-minute sermon, which you will say probably amen to. But this commandment starts, it, it begs two questions, doesn't it? 
The first is, what does it mean to testify, and who is my neighbor? So we have to break down those a little bit, and for a few moments, I'd like to back you up just a little bit so that we can review the cultural and historical context of what's going on uh, when these commandments are given to the Israelites. Uh, but first, I'm going to ask you another question. Show of hands, please. How many of you have ever been on a camping trip? Okay, most everybody. Now, the next... Skylar, you've never been on a camping trip? Oh, all right. I, I was checking. I was, I was wondering, worrying there. So the next question, and, and you can raise your hands again if this applies. How many of you have ever been on a camping trip with two million plus of your favorite family, friends, and neighbors? Well, that's what's taking place here. The Israelites are camped right below Mount Sinai, and, uh, and that's when these commandments are given. And so... When I went on camping trips, I have six siblings, and so vacations when I was young were camping because we couldn't afford otherwise. But it, they usually came with the five questions we learned in grammar school. You remember what those were? Who, what, why, when, and where? Kind of like. So who was supposed to bring, you fill in the blank, because camping trips, usually somebody forgot their sleeping bag or their contact solution, the, the important things or unimportant things like clothes. Um, what in the world were we thinking? <laughs> Often was a question. Um, it's amazing how appealing staycations became when I would mention camping trips. Well, can't we just have a staycation? Um, why can't we just stay in a Holiday Inn? Yeah, that's uh, much easier. A lot less planning than stuff to take. Um, when can we go home? <laughs> uh, camping trips usually ended a day or two early because it rained and your tent was wet and all kinds of things happen. And where's the bathroom, the shower, the iPad, whatever it is you need? Um, camping trips and whining seem to go hand in hand, don't they? So here we are. The Israelites are camped below Mount Sinai. The commandments are given. Um, and they're, when they're camped spe very specifically. They're camped by tribes. They're camped by clans. They're camped by families. And so your neighbor, when you're camping in, in, with two million people, it, you're fairly familiar with your family and your clan when you're camped. And, but the questions are the same. Who's in charge? There was a constant battle with Moses about who's really leading this group of people. It, it's interesting because even, even God and Moses had some bickering back and forth a little bit, didn't they? Moses would say, well, this people you gave me, and God will say, your people have done this. And so, who's in charge of this camping trip? Um, what were we thinking when we left Egypt? Now, they had just left pretty harsh slavery, but yet they get out on, on the road to the promised land, and immediately, they're wishing they were back in Egypt. Why can't we go back? We had plenty in Egypt. When will we get to the promised land? Well, that took some 40 years. Um, and uh, where's the water? Where's the food? And so their camp, the whining, the questions are still the same. And so as you can imagine with all the whining, there comes a whole lot of disputes. You can imagine. Hey, Eliezer sheep pooed in front of my tent. Jephunas ate more manna, took more manna than he was supposed to take. And so there had to be a way to settle these disputes. And so that was Moses' job. So in Exodus chapter 18, verse 30, I want to take you back a little bit. Exodus chapter 30, verse 18, Moses gets a, a 
visit from his father-in-law Jethro. And in verse 13, here's the dialogue. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. As they stood around him from morning till evening, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you do it alone? Why do you sit as judge alone while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people came to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties to inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. If I can paraphrase that, Moses, you're killing yourself. But in order to settle these disputes, they had to stand in line. There had to be at least two witnesses that would collaborate the testimony of the dispute. And uh, I... I've watched a lot of Perry Mason. Now, for those of you that don't know Perry Mason, Perry Mason was a 1950 coolest lawyer ever kind of show. And what I learned from watching Perry Mason is there's a whole lot of false testifying going on. I, there was a lot of that happening in these disputes that Moses is trying to settle as well. You see, telling the truth isn't always convenient, is it? But the second part of that is lying is pretty easy. I mean, if you think about it, when, when your child was four years old and you said, who ate that candy? What did they say? Not me. With chocolate all over their face. And the sad part is, lying doesn't seem to resolve itself as we get older. In fact, it often gets easier. The only difference is, now we have the cognitive ability to justify our lies. We classify them as little white lies or they are a necessary evil. So lying has been around since the beginning of time. In fact, the very first sin is born out of a lie. When Satan approaches Adam and Eve in the garden and says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from that? Will it really kill you? And so the first sin is born out of a lie. And, uh, and so it's been around forever. And sometimes it gets confusing because, I mean, was it really a bad lie when those that were hiding the Jews from extermination from the Nazis would lie about hiding them or when the midwives of the Israelite midwives would lie about not uh, I mean they disobeyed Pharaoh's direct order didn't they to kill all the babies or Rahab lied when she hid the spies when they were scouting out the promised land and so we have this conflict surrounding lies but let me be clear lying is not good in fact all lies are are a sin now they're natural Psalm 58 3 the wicked are estranged from the womb they go astray as soon as they born are born speaking lies so it comes pretty natural and so why do we lie well we lie to gain advantage we lie to cover up a sin or injustice um we lie to protect something we're trying to hide. So, sermon note number one, in context of this commandment, giving false testimony is more than just lying about your neighbor. For us, as it relates to our neighbors, lies are barriers to truth. Those hearing this commandment 
they're attempting to harm each other. They're attempting to gain advantage. They're attempting to get property or uh, to, to get a one-up on somebody. For us, lies limit our ability to live and speak truth for our neighbors. And ultimately, that can prevent them from the light and knowledge of Christ. It, it, it provides a wall that keeps people from knowing Christ. When we lie, rather than being seen as different from our neighbors, we're seen as just like our neighbors. Which brings us to the next question, who then is our neighbor? Well, as we've discussed this camping arrangement, now for these Israelites, their neighbors are the people probably from their families, clans, or tribes that are camped around them. So they have a lot in common. They're known. Um, they're also probably camped along with some livestock and some servants and all kinds of, of people they're familiar with. For us... Well, I thought maybe to explain this, this who is our neighbor question, I found this archive video of this well-known person that sings about who's our neighbor. I thought I'd show you this video. Just... You were expecting Mr. Rogers? It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Pastor Would Brian, you I be couldn't mine? resist. I hope you're watching. <laughs> All right, that's what you get for having me speak on eight words. <laughs> it goes without saying that the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is much different than it was in the 1950s. It's much different than it was when these Israelites are camped. Strong's exhaustive concordance defines a neighbor as an acquaintance or a friend or, um, there's one other one, or companion. And that covers a whole lot of ground in context of what it means to be a neighbor. Beyond what we think uh, as neighbor, when we think about the old definition would be someone who lives across the street or the person next door or someone in my neighborhood. Well, today... Co-workers, gym buddies, Pinterest pals, our neighbors span the globe, don't they? So, sermon note number two. Our neighbor is anyone who clicks follow to our tweets, TikTok videos, Facebook. I don't know what that is. Thank you. And that one too. All right, so it tells you my neighbors are limited. But the truth is, our neighbors now are anybody that we are connected to, and there are a variety of ways that we connect in today's world with our technology. And so our neighbors can be across the globe. And let me take you back to the Israelites camped at Mount Sinai. They're there for a specific reason. They're there because they have been called out by God. And if you go back to, to Genesis chapter 12, there's a, a covenant that God makes with a man named Abram and he, where he says, I want you to leave. I want you to leave your land, your family, go to a place I will show you. And eventually he says, the purpose is that all nations through you will be blessed. 
And so here we are now, this group of people, the descendants of Abram are camped at Mount Sinai. They're set apart. They're called out for one specific purpose, and that purpose is that they could be a light to point the way to a loving God to their neighbors around them. And their neighbors in this context would, were the, all the ites, the Amorites, the, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Parasites. Um, so all of the ites living around them, they were called out separate to be an example of God's love to point the way and be witnesses of his goodness. So that's their neighbors. By obeying his commands, their neighbors, the neighbors around them would see that they were different. They lived by a different code, a different set of standards. Their worship was different. So how do we apply this commandment to the world we live in? A world where we don't stand in the Moses line, where we don't testify against our neighbors about sheep or or other matters but a world where our words are streamed, our videos are viewed, and we have followers, i.e. neighbors, we may never meet or even know. Well, the truth is the same. Folks, we are called out to be witnesses. We are called out to be different. We're called out to be separate. And as we've discovered, to testify means to proclaim something. We are called out to be proclaimers, to be testifiers. And in commandment number nine, they were instructed not to testify falsely against their neighbor or lie. Now, if you were a witness on the Perry Mason show, I think it's still true today, you go and you put your hand on the Bible and you say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Folks, we are truth proclaimers. That's what we're called out to be. And so if I could take this commandment and flip it over, rather than testify falsely, we should be truth speakers. We should speak truth. And that's sermon note number three. Our lives are a living testimony of God's work in our lives. So Israel Israel was called out to be a light. In Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Speaking of Jerusalem, of Israel. See, darkness covers the earth, and a thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Just like Israel was called out for the purpose of shining light to the nations, we're called out to shine light to our neighbors across the globe. We're to to be living testimony givers. So what does it mean to be a living testimony? Well, honestly, we give testimony with every breath, don't we? We give testimony with everything we do, with every word. Our past is a testimony of God's grace. The work of God in our lives right now is a testimony to God's provision. The way that we look to the future with hope is a testimony of God's graciousness in our lives. So our lives are to be a living testimony of that. We are testifying and proclaiming every time, listen to me, someone reads a post, a blog, sees a sign in our yard, hears us yell at a soccer game. We're testifying. So the question becomes, what then are we testifying? 
are we being living testimony? Are we giving a living testimony? Matthew chapter 5, verses 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, what are we to do? Let your light shine before men. Why? So they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We are called out to be living testimonies. We're called out to be light bearers. That's what we're to proclaim. That's the living testimony that we're to give. The church that I grew up in, um, and some of you will relate to this, we had occasionally, we had Sundays that were called testimony Sundays. Now I see some heads doing this, which means some of you remember that. Now, what I remember about those services when I was a kid is that I didn't like them very much because they reminded me of our family reunions. And our family reunions were usually in some musty, air-conditioned civic center in some little town where there was nothing to do. And I would sit and listen to the old people same, tell the same stories over and over and over again. Well, as I've reflected on that, understand that testimonies are powerful, and we need to hear testimonies. And when we're gathered as a group like this, we need to hear what God has done because it reminds us of where we've been. It might remind some of us that I never want to go back to that. So testimonies are a good thing. And we need to share testimonies about God's goodness in this group. But folks, what I really want to hear are your living testimonies. It's important to know what God has done. I want to know what God's doing now in your life. And when we're talking about being truth bearers to our neighbors, that's what's going to change their lives. We can tell them the story of how, what God's done in my life, but what's really going to impact them is when, I start, when they start seeing what God is doing in my life right now. What's he doing in my marriage, in my finances, in my family, in my job loss, in the tough situations of life? What is God doing right now? That's what impacts my neighbors. And our lives should be living testimonies of God's work, not only in our past, yes, but what's he doing today and what am I looking forward to? That's all a part of my living testimony. And for the sake of our neighbors, it's important that they see all of that that we proclaim all of that. Which leads us to sermon, eight, sermon note number four. The inverse of giving false testimony is speaking truth. Now, full disclosure, I wrote, I typed this out uh, without really probably understanding the, the definition of what inverse meant. And so I went to my cronies, my riding partners on the motorcycles after we'd been on the bike for about 12 hours, and I said, I read the statement and said, is this accurate? And they all agreed it was probably accurate, but they didn't know any better than I did. So what we did what all fine theologians do these days. We pulled out our cell phones and typed, define inverse. Inverse means reversed in position, order, direction, or tendency. Inverted, turned upside down. Something that is inverse, the direct opposite. And while all of these definitions are accurate, while they're all true in regards to our discussion, the one that I think I like most is turned upside down. You see, truth turns lies upside down. Truth with a capital T turns lies 
falsehood upside down. So rather than lie to gain advantage over my neighbor, my words, my tweets, my Instagram, my videos, my Facebook posts should be speaking truth. They should be pointing people because I'm called out, because I'm separate. So in a few days, I turned 59. And in my 59 years on this earth, I've learned one simple principle. When I take something out of my life, I need to replace it with something else. For instance, I decided a while back I probably need to take these out of my life. <laughs> I know it's a sad thing. So I know that I just can't stop eating. That's not, and I know I'm probably going to snack. And so I probably should replace those with something like this. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, that's probably not any better than that. But if you knew my eating habits, it's an improvement. Now, I also want you to know that I've listened to all the commandments, and when Pastor Brian talked about honoring your father and mother, my mom said, don't let anything go to waste, so I probably will eat all of these. <laughs> then I'll get to the, uh, the good stuff. But when I take something out of my life, when I, when I stop speaking falsely against my neighbor, what do I replace it with? I replace it with speaking truth. I replace it with, with being a light, I reverse it from lying to speaking truth. So, the inverse of false testimony is speaking truth. The inverse of taking a life, murder, is giving life. We've covered that commandment. The inverse of committing adultery is staying faithful. The inverse of taking something that isn't mine, stealing, is giving something to someone in need the inverse of wanting something that someone else has coveting which we'll come to next week so they have to come back the inverse of wanting something that isn't mine is being content with what God has blessed me with you see what that does is by turning those upside down those commandments they turn from, from don'ts and do's that I do much like the rich young ruler remember when he went to Jesus and said Lord what do I need to do to have what do I need to do to have eternal life and Jesus listed the commandments don't steal don't kill don't and, and what was his response I've done all these since my youth which was probably a lie by the way and yet when we change those and we turn those upside down and we change them from the things that we can check off and do all of a sudden they start pointing the way towards truth now I'm giving to others. Now I'm putting others ahead of myself. Now I'm staying faithful to my spouse, to, to my commandments, to my promises. Now I, I stop coveting something that isn't mine and I start being more content with what I have. So now all of a sudden the commandments become alive and not just a list of do's and don'ts. It raises the bar. It separates me and makes me look different from my neighbor's. And that's a problem in our world today is that oftentimes we as Christians don't look any different, do we? And yet the commandments raise the bar. They separate me. They sanctify me or set me apart in ways that I can speak truth that impacts those around me. And there are a lot of people camped around me. Interestingly, back to the Moses line, if you were found to have given, been given false testimony, the penalty was often the same as what you were trying to seek from the other person. 
For instance, if I was trying to gain an advantage and gain property, oftentimes I would have to give up my property. If I was trying to seek somebody's life, oftentimes I would lose my life. Well, Jesus' words to us about speaking truth aren't much different. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. I might add to that every idle text, blog, post, video. The words you say will either quit or condemn you. Pretty powerful. And so, eight words. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. How do we apply that? Well, we apply that by speaking truth, by being separate, called out, so that we can be light bearers. So let me end by giving you a checklist of maybe some things this week that you can review and work on. First, identify who your neighbors are. Once a year, we most of us go through that Facebook thing where that action where we go through and you do the, well, if you don't respond to my meaningless post, I'm going to defriend you or unfriend you or whatever you do. And so you reduce your friend list. Who's on your friend list? Who's watching what you post? Who's connected with you by way of social media? Who's watching your videos? Maybe more importantly, who's watching you at home? Who's listening to what you say at your workplace? Who's seeing you on the softball field? Those are your neighbors. So check your neighbors list. And then secondly, review your testimony. What do you need to do to be a living testimony? What can you do to speak truth, to give life, to stay faithful, to be content? You've been called out. We've been called out. We're camped amongst ungodly neighbors, sadly. What's going to change the world? I am. I'm going to change the world when I'm a witness for truth, when I speak truth, when I'm different than those around me. That's what we've been called out to do. So commandment number nine, way more than just a don't list. Don't give false testimony. It speaks to how I interact with the world around me. We're going to close today with a prayer of offering. Um, we live in a community where the, one of the hard things we do as a church is sometimes we have to, to witness deployments. And, and so I, we know, I know that there's a family that soon is going to be deployed. Uh, and so I want to, in this offering prayer, also take some time. If you are being deployed, um, if you just want to stand up, I want to pray over you at this time. And so if, if anybody here uh, knows, let me ask you to do this. If you know someone that's being deployed, if you're friends of, of those people, would you just uh, maybe stand or raise your hand, and, and we'll, we're going to pray for them as well, all right? So I see some hands. All right. Let's pray. I'm going to call the worship team up to prepare us for our, our last song. Father, thank you for the time that uh, we've spent with you this morning. Thank you for your, uh, your truth that guides us. Father, thank you for calling us out to be different, to be light bearers, to be truth speakers. Father, not truth speakers, um, well, help us to be that still small voice type of truth seeker and speaker. 
that still small voice where people look at what you're doing in our lives when they see our living testimony and they are impacted. It begins that journey for them to ask questions. Father, help us to be that type of a truth speaker. Father, as we process what we've heard today, um, Lord, remind us that uh, our neighbors are everywhere, that, uh, that they're all over the internet, that they're all over our neighborhoods, that they're all over uh, our church, our community. And so, Father, remind us that we need to, uh, to be witnesses to those neighbors. And, Father, we also ask that you would bless uh, the offering this morning, that you would take what we give and use it, multiply it uh, for your glory, that you would expand your kingdom, that you would accomplish your work. We celebrate things like achieving our goal for kids' camp. Uh, we thank you for your faithfulness there. Uh, but, Lord, the work's not done. And so help us as we give to trust you more. Father, thank you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we finally ask that you would be with those who uh, are being deployed, that are deployed currently, that are separated from family and friends. And we ask that you would put your hands of protection over them, that you would surround them with your love, that in the moments of loneliness, that you would comfort them, in the moments of sadness, that you would bring them joy, and in the separation, that you would be ever-present. And Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.